0: Welcome back to the Sporting Max Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Becker's Facilities. High pressure washing, facility maintenance, builders clean, and commercial sanitizations. They do it all. Check them out at BeckersFacilities.com.au. Here's your host, Max Becker.
1: Welcome back everyone to another episode of Sporting Max, where today we're joined by Melbourne Tigers NBL legend, Lennard Copeland. Welcome to the podcast, Lennard. How are you? I'm good, buddy. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Not too bad. Just trying to get through uh, the second wave of COVID-19. Pretty hard, huh? Yeah, yeah. Tough. Can you tell All us about right. what it was like for you growing up in America?
0: Yeah, well, um, I, um... I was sort of different because I didn't play basketball as a kid. I mean, when I was smaller, I was more into the football and I played a little bit of baseball and I rode my skateboard a lot because I was I was a bit of, I was was pretty short uh, and we lived pretty close to a park, so there was always a basketball court there, but I was just an all-arounder. I wanted to do everything. I wanted to play all kinds of sport. And then my junior and senior year in high school, I sort of tried out for my basket, the varsity basketball team, and I got cut my junior year. And then that summer, I grew a little bit, so I started getting a little bit taller. And then the senior year, I tried out, and he cut me again. And uh, that didn't sit pretty well. That didn't sit well with me because I wanted to, I, I, eventually I wanted to play basketball. And um, that summer, I grew about six inches and then, and then you know, tried out for a college team and made the college team. So as a kid, though, I was just an all-arounder, man. I just tried to do everything, football, Baseball, basketball, you know, I did it all.
1: You played college basketball for four years at Georgia State. Can you tell me about what's it like to play in a college basketball team and your experience? My,
0: my college experience was great because I, I walked on. I walk on as someone who, who's not recruited, uh, you know, out of, out of high school, because I, obviously because I didn't play. Uh, And um, there were thirty-one other guys trying out for the scholarship. There's only one scholarship left. Like every team gets about fifteen scholarships, and there was one scholarship left, and there was thirty-one of us trying out for this one spot. And uh, I had no experience. Again, I hadn't played high school basketball, but I was very athletic. I could jump. Uh, My my shot was okay, but it wasn't great. But I impressed the coach because I, you know, I I pushed myself. Said, "Listen, I've been cut twice." I'm not going to get cut again. And I just went out there and busted my butt. And I had a couple of nice dunks. And the coach came to me after the tryout. And he said, listen, we want, we want to bring you in. Uh, we're we're going to bring you in for the rest of the year. We don't know if we can give you a full ride, which means we don't know if we can give you a four-year scholarship. But we can certainly give you a one-year scholarship. And that was great news for my parents because before then, we were paying for college. And college is pretty expensive. So they gave me a one-year deal, but then midway through the season, they ended up giving me a four-year scholarship, which is, huh. which is news to my mom and dad. They were very happy. What
1: was that like for yourself and your family, being rewarded halfway through the season?
0: It was amazing because, you know, you don't – to pay for books and to pay for room and board and to pay for meals cost you a fortune. Now, we weren't rich, but we weren't poor, but we weren't rich either. And uh, once I got the scholarship, everything was paid for. I got an appointment, they gave me a job in the summer. I got a, a, a check to help out with the bills. Um, you know, food was paid for, so you could relax, go to school, um, and and play basketball.
1: You entered that not in the 1989 NBA draft, but didn't get picked. Did this do anything to your mindset, or how did you pick yourself up from that?
0: Well, I didn't, really didn't I – didn't, I didn't sort of enter the draft. What happened was my senior year, I probably had a pretty good year. I averaged about 15 points a game in college, and that's a pretty good season. Um, first year, I didn't play a lot. Second year, I averaged about seven or eight, I think, and then it went up to like 12. And then my fourth year, I was averaging 15 points a game, and these scouts were coming from everywhere looking at players. And um, there was a scout from the Los Angeles Lakers who came in, And said, "Look, we like the way you play. They called it. They said I was wiry, which meant I could play defense. I could play offense. You know, I was pretty athletic. So we want to invite you to our rookie camp. You got to go to rookie camp first. So again, they invited me to the rookie camp, which is now called the NBA Summer League. And I went to rookie camp with the Lakers and ended up playing in two games. But this year, the Lakers that year, the Lakers brought in two teams, so they had." Two teams of 15, so 30 guys, whereas most teams bring in one team of 15. For some strange reason, the Lakers wanted to bring in a bunch of more guys. And I was on the second team, so I, was a, I wasn't a well-named. People didn't know me, but there was some bigger names there. And uh, we played in two games, and I played quite well at 30 points and 35 points. One was against the Philadelphia 76ers, and the other one was against San Antonio when David Robinson was coming in as well. So After playing those two games, the owner of the Philadelphia 76ers came down to the locker room and said, listen, we like the way you play. uh, We know you're with the Lakers right now at their rookie camp, but we'd like to invite you to our veterans camp. So you got to go to rookie camp, and then all the veteran guys come back, and then you join them to see if you can make the team. So I went ahead and signed a a, a contract, a full-year contract with the Philadelphia 76ers, and ended up playing with Charles Barkley and Rick Mahorn. Scotty Brooks, who's a coach of the Washington Wizards right now. Johnny Dawkins, who's coaching a college team. Kenny Payne was another teammate of mine who is uh, now an assistant coach with the New York Knicks. And Charles Barkley, who's obviously on TNT um, doing his stuff. So I-, I had some pretty famous guys as teammates, and uh, it-, it was amazing. What
1: was it like to play at the pro level at Philly?
0: philly was Philly was different because you know as a rookie, as a young guy, I was the twelfth man, which meant I didn't play a lot. I didn't get an opportunity to play a lot. You only played when you were either losing by a lot or you're winning by a lot and I, I got in the, I, I played in thirty games and my my claim me, I scored in every game I played in, which was probably two points here or four points there um and uh, sort of made a name of myself as a guy who can score or a guy who can shoot. And then um, they cut me and brought in Manute Bowl. They cut me and Scotty Brooks and brought in Manute Bowl. And then I went back to Atlanta and tried out for the Atlanta Hawks and didn't make it. But then I, I had another tryout with the Los Angeles Clippers and I did quite well there and stayed there for half a season. And then I went to the Philippines and then came to Australia.
1: In the course of that, 1990-91 season. You were with three different teams in the CBA and the United States Basketball League. How did you go settling into each club and then pick yourself up? And,
0: yeah. That's different because CBA back then is the, is the G League now. And it's all about getting your number. You think it's all about getting your numbers. Now, I, 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 I prided myself as being a, a pretty good scorer. I, could, I love to score the ball. And whenever I got on those CBA teams, if you've been bopped down from the NBA to a CBA team, well, in the, in, in, the, in the CBA, I was sort of known as the man, and they, and I got the ball a lot. I got to shoot the ball a lot. But I didn't want to be there because I had already tasted the NBA. So I wanted to be somewhere where I was, you know, making a lot of money and, and, and playing and having a good time. In the CBA, you're playing in these smaller cities The crowds are very small. You're riding around in vans. You know, you're not traveling a lot um, on the planes. So I wanted to be back up in the NBA. And so I scored and scored and scored. Then I got an opportunity to go uh, play in the Philippines where uh, I met Dwayne McLean, who was a player here in Australia. And he told me, and and he sort of mentioned, you know, the team was looking for a player. So I figured I'd come over here to play and uh, get back to the NBA. But I was 26 years old at the time. And once you played here, you know, 27 years old, trying to go back to the NBA was pretty much not going to happen.
1: Uh, what was that like to play in the Philippines?
0: Philippines was different because they call it, called me an import, which is, you know, like the imports here. But we only had one import, and I was the import. So every time I, every time I came down the court, I got the ball. I had to score. My highest score in the, in the Philippines was 66 points in a game, and I averaged about 48 48 points a game. So every game I scored at least 40 points. But they, they play they, – the Philippines love basketball. They eat and breathe basketball year-round, um, and they play in this massive, massive stadium, um, and uh, it was fun. I mean, big crowds. They, they, their three-point line is the NBA line, so – they, they're, they're really keen on their basketball over there. So, it was, it was a great league to play in. But what it did was it prepared me to come to Australia because if I'm if I'm scoring 48 points a game in the Philippines, that means I'm working on my skills and, I, and my shooting and my, my, my getting to the basket. So, when I got to Australia, it was almost like, look, it's just another league for me. So, that's why it was so easy for me to fit in with the with the Australian. You know, my, my first season I was 29. I think Andrew was 31. But – it was sort of easy for us to, to fit in because we both were scorers, and we knew how to we knew how to get each other the ball.
1: When you were in the Philippines, being the only import, did you sort of feel the pressure each game, or? every
0: game you felt the pressure because if you didn't score, you got cut, and that's what it's like. That's what it's like being an import. They they bring you in to score the ball. If you can't score, then they bring in somebody else because there's a million guys looking for jobs. You got to be able to to be on your game, you know, and. Uh, the, the climate it was so hot over there that I, I got so fit uh, you think I'm skinny now, but back then I was extra skinny, but I got so fit that that whenever I, I, whenever I got here I was in such good shape that it, you know I could play 48 minutes a game in
1: 1992 you moved to Australia. Did you feel like it was a big cultural shift and how did you go settling in?
0: you know um, basketball was a different. Sort of, I, I remember we trained at Albu Park Stadium, which is the old Albu Park Stadium, which was a tiny place compared to me training in the NBA or in the Philippines. They had massive stadiums, but basketball is basketball worldwide. I mean, wherever you go, you know, it's still the same game. And um, luckily, I came to a place where people spoke English. There were a couple of Americans, Dave Simmons, Ben Simmons' father, was on the team. Um, Al Westover was another American who was an assistant coach. So I got along with the guys, and then Andrew obviously came in and, and I sort of got along with him as well.
1: Your second year at the Tigers, you helped the team to a championship in 93. What was it like to come into a team second year and do something like that?
0: Well, we were very close to that my first year. My first year we went to the grand final and lost. That third, I think we lost in the third game of a grand final. So Again, like I said before, I was looking to go back to the States and probably try to get back on an NBA team, but I felt like there was still more to do here. I mean, to get that close and not win it all well, it didn't sit right with me. And uh, I think they liked what I, what I presented to them and, and sort of I liked what they, what they offered me. So I ended up staying, signing a three-year deal, and in the second year we brought in Mark Brackey and we were able to, uh, to win that championship over in Perth.
1: In '97, you also won the NBL championship with the Tigers, and you personally won the grand final MVP. What was your reaction to getting that MVP, and what did that championship mean to you?
0: '97 was different because we were at home, and uh, we played at the uh, Rod Laver Arena uh, in front of our own crowd, um, and uh, it was it was it was amazing. The MVP was 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 fantastic, but. You mean when you're playing, you don't play for MVPs, you play to win championships, and that's what that's sort of what my focus was on. Um, I, I thought without sounding arrogant here, I thought I should have won the MVP in '93 in Perth, um, but it, it is what it is, and it didn't bother me at all. But in '97, it was just one of those times where a lot of times when you play in those grand finals, teams tend to focus on their best score. And, and whenever and – if you notice, whenever I play, we played in the a, in a playoffs, my average would always go up because teams would try to shut Andrew down. So if you, if you shut Andrew down, the Tigers can't win. But I didn't want that to happen. So I made sure I got my scoring in to sort of to, – to make up for those, those losses.
1: You were selected in the All-NBL First Team in 99 and 02. Does it give you confidence as a player when you start to get on a roll and get selected with those honors?
0: Yeah, again, they're, they're, they're um, accolades that you, you never start playing the game for. You just, um, just sort of play the game because you love the game. And I started playing because I love it now. The, the, the awards are fantastic. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give them back. But I play this game because I love to play. I love to score. I love to, you know, be, be – in the same locker room with the guys and, and, and love to be on the practice floor and love working on your game. So if you're doing all that and you got love for, for the game and, and then eventually something good is gonna happen because you spend so much time.
1: You left the Tigers after that 04 05 season and joined the Bullets. What impacted your decision to, you know, make the move?
0: Well Lindsey retired Andrew was retiring Mark Bracky was moving on And then there was an opportunity for me to play at a couple of teams. But I knew uh, the general manager from Brisbane. Uh, It sort of just gave me a new look because I'd been with the Tigers for 15 long seasons. And, uh, you know, sometimes you need a a, a new look. And I went there. And I signed a two-year deal, but I only ended up staying one year because I think the, the direction they were going I was in like 39 or 40 at that age, playing, still trying to play professional basketball. And he had a lot of younger guys, and that was Joey Wright. And he sort of pushed those younger guys, which is understandable. But I was just too old to be doing tour days and that kind of stuff. So I went ahead and moved on to Adelaide and played two years in Adelaide where uh, I finished my career.
1: What was the luck to be coached by Joey Wright?
0: Joey's a great coach, man. He pushes. Joey's uh, what we call an old school college coach, which means he'll get it out of you. He'll 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 push you until you you either you either give it to him or you don't. And uh, luckily, he's been good. he's been that kind of coach where he uh, he's the first coach. Let me say the first coach that made me throw up. That, I shouldn't say that, but one of those <laughs> when you're running and running and running. And um, I just knew that look as much as I loved him. I played against Joey much as I love his style, I was probably a little bit too old to be under his wing at that time.
1: You played just one season of the Bullets before uniting with the 36ers for two years. Did you feel like you'd fit that 36ers side better than you did the Bullets? Or what
0: Absolutely, because under Phil Smythe, who was the head coach, Phil had played a long time, and Phil had played as a, at an older age. So Phil sort of knew how to take care of the older guys. Like, my training routine was a lot different than everyone else's. My job was to come in off the bench and score. And, but during the week, those younger guys would train every day, whereas I would just get up a bunch of shots. I'd ride a bike to stay fit, go over the plays, you know, look at film, do the same sort of stuff as them. But I didn't waste my legs Monday through Friday in training. I saved my legs for the weekend. And I think that, that's probably why I ended up staying for two years.
1: At the end of your 708 season, you had played 572 NBL games on an average of 20 points, 3.7 boards, and three assists. In what was an amazing career for you, why did you decide to retire and take a step back from the game?
0: Uh, age. Uh, again, uh, I was I was 42, I think, when I retired. A uh, 41, 42. And uh, I remember laying on the floor one day with Andrew and we were stretching and we were losing, and I was going nuts like, Drew, I can't keep taking this loss. He's losing, he's losing. I said, when do you know when it's t-? I said, how do you know it's time to retire? He goes, you'll know. You'll know when it's time. And the reason I retired was because I didn't, I, I didn't have that love for the game. I didn't have that love for the extra work. I couldn't, I didn't want to get up in the morning and, and run the laps. And I didn't want to get up in the morning and get up my 500 shots. I was just over it because I'd done so much. I played so many games. Remember, I played four years of college and two years in the NBA and three years in the CBA in the Philippines. I had a stint in France during the offseason here, and to play 500 games in the NBL. But I also played in the in the um, the Wednesday Night League in, in Melbourne, which was a lot of games as well—one or two games a week, uh, one game a week. So it might have been 500 NBL games, but it was probably more like a thousand games. In the time that I've been in Australia, so it was tough, uh, and it was time. It was in my leg—I didn't have—I didn't have the desire to to go out there and give it my all. So I knew it was time to give it up.
1: You were Phil Smith's assistant coach at the ACB Academy. What was it like coaching with him, and why did just decide to you know take up coaching?
0: Well, if you played this long, you feel like you've learned a lot, and I think it's inevitable that. Most guys want to give something back, and I just want—I mean, I, I've learned over the years how how to be a professional, how not to act, you know, and 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 what it takes to push your body and keep your body healthy. And so, I wanted to sort of spread the word, you know, and you want to give back. So that's sort of why I got into coaching. I mean, I enjoy it. I enjoy being around the guys, and uh, and just wanted to help out.
1: You're head coach of the Hume City Broncos men's team. What was it like
0: for you to coach a Big B team? Big B is a lot different because it's, it's, it's semi-professional. A couple of guys on the team make money, but mostly everyone has to work. And so some days you'd come in to train and we would train on Tuesdays and Thursdays and some guys would be at work, some guys wouldn't. And so a lot of times you didn't have 10 guys to train. I mean, you need 10 guys on the floor to scrimmage. And a lot of times, a lot of times we didn't uh, we didn't have that, so um, it was tough, you know. But I enjoyed it because it was it was sort of me being in control and me helping those those guys um, to become better players. Um, I also coached at um, I also coached at Sunbury and I coached at Eltham. I was an assistant at Eltham, but I was a head coach at Sunbury. And um, you know, it's just it's it's just something that you want to do. Once you finish, you want to get back.
1: You won the uh, Victorian High School Championship as head coach of Brig College in um, 2014. What's it like to coach a high school team? Is it much different to, say, the high school um, varsity team or a college team in America?
0: It is a little bit different because um, these guys only, only train once a week. And they, uh, you know, it's more about school here. Whereas in America, high school is a big thing. Like, we didn't have a lot of crowds. We played on Saturday mornings. And I think Chris Anstey coached Caulfield and Warwick coached the team and Daryl McDonald coached a team. So it was almost like competing against my old teammates again. We play every Saturday morning, the APS. Uh, but I was lucky enough to win that championship against Caulfield. Um, and, um, the McDonald's Championship because uh, I had a, a great group of guys um, and uh, very happy with that. Very happy.
1: In early 2016, you were named assistant coach along at the Kings, Sydney Kings, alongside Dean Vickerman, who we've recently had on your pod on the podcast, and your best mate, one of your best mates, Andrew Gaze. What's it like coaching with you guys? And can you tell us about how you got that gig at um, Sydney?
0: Well, the general manager again, the same guy who sort of brought me into the Brisbane Bullets. Jeff Van Groningen, he was general manager with the Melbourne Tigers and he's general manager with the Bullets. And he got the general manager's job in Sydney. And, and I think he knew we all had aspirations on wanting to be a coach. And he, when, he, when he spoke to me and Drewy about going up there, it was a big move that Drewy at first didn't really want to do because he didn't want to leave his son. His son's playing basketball. But I think with both of us going up there, being friends, being the type of friends we are, we had someone else to lean on. And Dean Vickerman is an ex-Melbourne Tiger guy. So it was almost like all three of us knew each other very well. Um, we sort of, you know, we're all friends. So it, 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 um, it made it a lot easier. It made it a lot easier, uh, that, that journey to Sydney, being away from your family.
1: Can you tell us about your relationship with Gacy and how you became mates?
0: Well, you know, he, I think we were both competitive guys. You know, he, he obviously – the Melbourne Tigers was his team. He was a man. His father was a coach. And he'd been here and done that and scored a million points. And when I got here, remember I just come from the Philippines, but I come from the NBA as well. So I was most imports, when they come into a team here, they're, they're expected to score. They're expected to be a leader on the team. But sort of the Melbourne Tigers had already had that guy. But I think Andrew respected me enough to know that um, – He needed me to win, and I needed him to win. So we sort of fit quite well the first couple of that first year we played together. You know, he he would score thirty, but I had to score thirty as well. Now a lot of people look at that as being uh, in competition, but what it was doing was just making both of us better players. And we knew how to find each other. You know, and I knew if I was down, he'd pick it up. If he was down, I'd pick it up. But I knew where he needed the ball, and he sort of knew where I needed the ball. And started throwing the alley hoop and that whole thing became a, um, um, you know, something that people enjoyed. So we, we kept at it.
1: Yeah, you used to throw a lot of alley-oops to you back in the day. What kind of trust in each other do you need to have to be able to do that kind of thing on a regular basis?
0: Well, you you, you have to have a guy who, who knows where to put the ball and you have to have a guy who can jump, uh, you know, who pretty much is athletic. And we both had those characteristics, characteristics because he, he was a very good passer and I was very athletic. And it just happened one day we were in training early when I first got here. That I think he took a jump shot or something and I jumped up and slapped the ball away. And, you know, obviously he knew I could jump. And he cut down one day and he just tossed it up there and I caught it. And it just became, a you know, it wasn't something that we called. It was just something happening happened in the game. Whenever I seen him with the ball to run on that right side or that left side. And if someone shut him down or tried to close him out, he was always going to toss it up. And we did. I was lucky enough to go get it most times.
1: When you left the Sydney Kings with Gazy when he stepped down after the 18-19 season, did you sort sure of have an outlook on life after coaching with the Kings?
0: Well, it was an experience. It's something that you, um, you know, you, um, I thought we did quite well. I mean, we didn't win a championship, and that's probably what everyone wanted. But when we took over that team, they were they weren't the best team in the league. I mean, they were I think the year before we took over, they won five games. So we went from five games to twelve to ten games or eleven games or twelve games to eighteen ga- I think we won eighteen games that year before when we left. You know, we were eighteen and nine, I think, and they were top first place with Perth and Melbourne United. Um, so we certainly got better. You know, I, I think maybe if we had another year, we probably could have won a championship. But the way the Sydney Kings worked, they wanted a championship right then, and they made a move. And that's what happens with, with most coaches. I mean, they give you a time to, to win a championship. But it's all about the championship. It's, you know, times have changed where a coach can come in and stay at a team for five or six years and not win something. So, but at the end of the day, I was very proud of what we achieved, uh, very proud of our relationship with some of the players, And, uh, you know, happy that I did it.
1: Who is the best player you've ever played with in your basketball career?
0: Best player I've ever played with would probably be Charles Barkley slash Andrew Gaines because of what he does. Um, Best player I've ever played against is, is obviously Michael Jordan. got a chance once. But uh, there because in the NBA there's so many athletic guys and guys that can flat out play. Dwayne McLean comes to mind when uh, when I say one of the best players, Leroy Loggins played against those guys were were scoring machines and uh yeah, they're very good.
1: Last year you were inducted into the Australian Basketball Hall of Fame on February seventeenth. What does that sort of honor mean to you and how did you achieve it?
0: Again, it's a it's an award that I'm very proud of, very to have but I didn't start playing basketball to be a Hall of Famer. You know, I'm just glad that people recognize that what I've brought to the table deserves that honor. Um, and it's, it's great to be a Hall of Famer. You know, it's not a lot of people can say that. Uh, but playing as long as I played and, and, being, and enjoying the game as much as I did, I think it fits quite well, and I'm very happy with it.
1: What would be your advice to anyone trying to make it to the NBA or NBL? or, you know, make an international basketball career in the coming years and have a yeah, quite successful career like yours?
0: To, 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 to train as much as possible. Now, the difference now and when we came up was there's a lot of distractions. You guys have iPhones and you have computer games and you have Internet. Back in my day, we had none of that. So a lot of guys now go on YouTube and watch all this training they watch training for five hours. My day, we train for five hours. We get, we're we on the court actually training. So my advice would be, yeah, have a look at it. You know, it's great that you have the internet and you can you can watch. But you've got to get on the court and you've got to put the hours in. Nothing comes easy if you want it. And I just think that if you put the time in, you can be whatever you want to be.
1: Thanks, Lenard, so much for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute honor
0: to have you on. Mate, I enjoyed it. I applaud you. Good luck with your podcast. And hopefully hopefully you'll get another couple of major superstars on here. But you're doing a great job. Good luck.
1: Tune in, everyone, for some more Sporting Max podcasts.
0: Thanks for listening to Sporting Max. Please like this episode and follow us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and tune in. This episode was brought to you by Becker's Facilities, your one-stop
1: shop for facility maintenance services.